1: Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elia Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. Welcome to the latest edition of 100, The Ed Gordon Podcast. Today, a look at a groundbreaking program that brought Black culture to the small screen like never before. This show was born during the late 1960s, during the height of the Black Pride movement, and featured some of the biggest names in music, including Stevie Wonder, Earth, Wind & Fire, Patti LaBelle, Gladys Knight, and Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes. It highlighted the deep, rich influence Blacks had on the world of arts. No, we're not talking about Soul Train. We're talking about soul. The show debuted on PBS two years before Don Cornelius would start a local show in Chicago called Soul Train. Unlike Soul Train, soul's concentration was wider than just music. It also showcased dance, spoken word, the fine arts, and intellectual discussions as well. The show aired for five seasons from 1968 to 1973. So why isn't Soul and its creator, Ellis Haslip, better known? Hard to say. However, both are finally getting some well-deserved shine thanks to the award-winning documentary, Mr. Soul. The film looks at the extraordinary show, its host, and the culture of the time. The documentary is the project of filmmaker Melissa Haslip, who is also the niece of the show's creator. Melissa, welcome.
4: Thank you so much. It's great to see you.
2: Glad to have you. You know, uh, in all transparency, I just said before we started, congratulations. This is a wonderful, wonderful project. And let me say this. I like to believe myself a bit of a music aficionado and an R&B aficionado, and I confess Probably about a year and a half ago, I stumbled on a performance on YouTube by Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes. And then I stumbled on a performance by the Dells. Yeah, I'm going to get into Teddy's perm in a minute. but <laughs> <laughs> And I thought, these are great performances. Where is this from? And then I found this show called Soul, which I knew nothing about. It's uh,
4: remarkable. I like to say it's the greatest show you've never heard of. Even for incredible soul aficionados and, you know, well, well, well deep into the culture, folks such as yourself and leaders in the music and entertainment. There are many people who have somehow missed this, you know, window that really was the precursor to our, what we think of as our cultural and visible cultural history on television with Soul Train. You know, this came before Soul Train from 68 to 73. And so it really is kind of like a a, a hidden figure in a way. Yeah, or it
2: really is. Guy. You mentioned that it, it it is a precursor. Soul Train came around on my birthday at dawn, August 17th, 1970. So I was 10 at that point. Um, but give me a sense of your uncle, who really is the driving force behind this show, and mm-hmm. what it was for him to create it. Because the time, if we talk about late 60s, early 70s, was really that true emergence of black pride and soul power and all of the things that I think have catapulted us to this point, but give me a sense of who he was and and why he really wanted to see this come to fruition.
4: Absolutely, Ellis Hayeslip is kind of an unsung hero, which makes him so uh, you know adorable and charming in a way because it's always I'm really in- attracted to the stories of you know ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And, and that's so relatable. Uh, not only was he my uncle, he was a real pioneer in, in terms of broadcasting and uh, really creating um, space for Black excellence. But before that, he was uh, really involved in the Black arts. Uh, he was, what was import- most important to him was to give visibility for Black artists and to be on the cutting edge of building Black institutions around art back at a time when we weren't really included in this, you know, folks weren't ascribing value to Blackness and Black creativity and Black black art. And, and so there was always an issue around, well, is it high art? Is it, is Black culture, is Black music the same as important as Beethoven? You know, is Black American dance the equivalent of New York City ballet? Like there were all these issues around, because we were on the, heels and civil rights movement, Jim Crow, this sense of inclusion, a word we use so casually now, wasn't even an option. And so Ellis Hazlip was a race man, as they say, in the olden days. And not that he had disdain for other races, but this is a term that actually meant he was a champion for the race. And he believed innately in our beauty, our strength, our excellence. And, you know, black excellence was not a hashtag. It really was a concept that, and, you know, to be young, gifted, and Black was very real. So Ellis's goal was continually to push the culture forward as a producer, as a pioneer, as a connector, but really to to give Black artists uh, a chance to be seen. This whole concept of visibility is so important and was important to him. And even now when we're talking about erasure and this idea that if we're not somehow, uh, you know, validated or justified or in the record books that our contributions to culture have been erased. And so I think Ellis was aware of that then, and he knew that he had to create something. And with Soul, uh, what's remarkable about it was not only was it a vehicle for African-American artistry, but it was a platform for political expression and the fight for social justice, which was not the model we knew for television at the time, certainly not for variety television, you know, set by Jack Parr and and Johnny Carson and Ed Sullivan. And, you know, television was monochromatic at the time. (laughs) It was pretty much white. And so to have a show that kind of interrupted that narrative and said, actually, there is a Black renaissance, there are Black artists and And music and things, you know, to put that into people's living rooms at that time, it's really remarkable. And I think he was very quiet and very low key, but he definitely had an agenda. And he knew that um, if people could just see the beauty and the love, that they could experience the full Black experience.
2: Yeah, I want to get into the creation of the show and what the show was and some of the names that came across. You know, I, I started my career in Detroit, um, on a show called Detroit Black Journal, which was the precursor to Tony Brown's Journal. Tony was the first host, and he went to PBS and started Tony Brown's Journal. I think of people like Gil Maddox, and there are many others that dotted the country um, and started these kinds of shows during this time. But there were extraordinary people that crossed through this show. Um, Your uncle was not the original host, Alvin Poussaint, uh, was right. a, a co-host with Loretta uh, Long, who later yeah. became Susan on Sesame Street.
4: That's right. <laughs> uh,
2: yeah, and then Nikki Giovanni would come through and host on occasions Stan Lathan, uh, many know uh, his daughter Sana uh, Lathan was the director of the show. and uh, here's the funny part. I was looking at the performance I was telling you about the Dells and they showed the credits at the end. and uh, on the credits it said Anna M. Horsford. Yes. Assistant producer. And I said to myself, I wonder if that's Anna Marie Horsford, who later we knew, uh, you know, on Amen. So talk to me about just the sheer number of people that walked through that door, let alone the performers. It really gave it really gave African-Americans an opportunity to work in this business beyond just the host.
4: Yeah. And that's what we also wanted to convey in the show, in the film was Uh, Ellis Hazip was creating a, a, a community and he understood the importance of visibility and opportunity because those were the two things that we didn't have anywhere, you know, an opportunity to have a job in television. And Ellis understood the importance of opening the door for others and giving opportunities that black women, women weren't having, you know, to be in positions of power. So he actually gave two black women, the first opportunity to be associate producers and assistant producers in television. And one of them was Anna Maria Horsford, who at the time was literally a temp at the front desk at WNET Channel 13. And Ella said, hello, what are you doing here? You know, come with me. And she said, I want to be an actress. And he said, well, you don't belong in the front here answering phones. Come with me. And he, lit- he was always doing that. He was inviting people into his sphere, elevating them and giving them opportunities. And so he brought Anna on to be an associate producer on the show and then gave her an opportunity to be on television when she, as an actress. So she started reciting poetry and um, acting and being on the show. And then the other one was um, she was married at the time to uh, Hal Jackson. Alice, Alice Hill, and it was Alice Hill Jackson at the time. And so she was working with Hal Jackson and helping to book artists up at the Apollo. And so there was this, you know, synergy there. And so a lot of the artists that were at the Apollo on stage, Alice was able to bring onto television. And that was the issue, you know, in terms of visibility. If you weren't at the Apollo or if you weren't on the Chitlin circuit, nobody could actually see you. You know, you could hear artists on the radio, but they weren't being seen. And that was Ellis's, what he championed was being seen was the equivalent of existing.
2: There will be a couple of generations now who can't conceive of Black people not being on television and not being able to see your favorite stars on TV. And when we look at the lineup of people that made it through the doors of this show, they're superstars. And you would assume well, of course they'd have a place on television. I, I'm talking about, let me just read off some of the names. Al Green, Stevie Wonder, Patti LaBelle, Gladys Knight, uh, Earth, Wind and Fire. I mentioned the Dells, Harold Melvin, the Blue Notes, Cool and the Gang, Roberta Flack. The list goes on and on and on. Yeah. But the truth of the matter is there was no landing place for m- most of those folks on commercial television.
4: That is exactly or, or right. Television. And part of the reason is because we only had three networks and PBS. We had ABC, NBC and CBS. And it was so hard because of Jim Crow, because of discrimination. Even a Black person being on television was a rare event. Um, You know, getting to see Harry Belafonte host uh, The Tonight Show as, you know, sitting in for a week was extraordinary. But Harry didn't have his own show. And when he did have a show, it was canceled very soon, as was um, Nat King Cole's show was canceled. And so there was this fight about not allowing black people to have agency and to be seen in their true light as opposed to being seen in negative um you know images and imagery of poor neighborhoods and people being arrested and the unrest uh, the the violence quote unquote associated with the black community because people were responding to the deaths of our heroes to, it was to important malcolm and medgar and you know, and the unrest that were happening across the country and racially, um, you know, the tensions. And so we were depicted very negatively. And so the first show on television that happened that same year as Ellis's was, you know, Julia in September Mm -hmm. of 68 And, and how remarkable that was in terms of turning the tide. And so that, but that was a, you know, a scripted show and here's Ellis saying, let me help. And I don't know, I think he was in the business of changing minds. And so just by showing Black culture, he was able to see, help people see, you know, that there is another version of Blackness.
2: When we return, we'll look at Soul as a vehicle for social change and Alice Haslip's other trailblazing role for the LGBTQ community.
3: I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there.
1: Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. people quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Soul
2: was more than just a program to highlight the hottest musical guest or dance troops Soul was a program that gave voice to great thinkers and causes of import in Black America. It was interesting as I watched um, the documentary because as you say, it wasn't just um R&B groups that he had on. He had dance but he also had thinkers on, influencers, yeah. as we call them now. It was important for him to get our faces and our words out. Uh, Muhammad Ali made it through. And as you mentioned, Harry Belafonte, Cecily Tyson, who's always been an activist. Yes, we knew her as an actress, but always an activist. But one of the most compelling uh, uh, episodes, uh, Tony Morrison, another name, Sonia Sanchez. But one of the most compelling um, episodes was when Nikki Giovanni and... Um, James Baldwin sit together.
0: Why do we, as black writers, seem to be so hung up in the truth?
3: No one yet believes, really. There is such a thing as a black writer. A black writer is still a freak. You know, maybe even a a dancing dog. We don't yet exist in the imagination of this century. And we cannot afford to play games. There's too much at stake. But there has to be a way to do what we do and survive which is, uh, to me, what seems to be missing. Sweetheart, sweetheart, our ancestors taught us how to do that.
4: I think it is the high watermark for the series in terms of Black intellect. Uh, You have two African-American literary icons to us now. But at, at the time, you know, Nikki Giovanni was a young kind of upstart looking up to her uh, her her idol, her icon, it's almost like, um, uh, what was that show called, Iconoclast, where mm-hmm. someone would interview their their idol. This was a precursor to that. The idea that you could have these two Black literary icons and intellectuals speaking together for a total of two hours. It's absolutely remarkable. They're talking about Black love and Black strength, Black sister and brotherhood, Black agreement, Black Family, you know, the representation of men and women and on and, and all the issues, Black dissent. You know, you see two dissenting the, uh, 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 con, con conversations at the same time. And it, what's remarkable about that is the humanity, hmm. but also the interiority of Blackness and, and getting to see how people are thinking. That wasn't conveyed on television, yeah. I think. In any shape or form, and the idea that you know James Baldwin was an expat at the time, he was living in the south of France at Saint Paul de Vence because of the unrest happening in America, and he didn't want to come to America to be on the show. So they went to him and met him halfway in London. Even that is a feat, <laughs> that, you know. How do you take a 1971 yeah. television show and with with black people in it and shoot it in London at the BBC? That was just remarkable. It's like he was an Afrofuturist recognizing the significance of these two people in the same room and that these kind of conversations weren't generally heard. You would see conversations with James Baldwin and, and white authors like Margaret Mead, et cetera, but this opportunity to have, uh, you know, this sort of black intellectual conversations were few and far between. And when and, he's
2: said- extraordinary that, as you mentioned, their thought, um, was not always harmonious but it was respectful. Um something that we don't see anymore today and I I just thought that was a, a strike, strikingly dissimilar to what we see today unfortunately. Absolutely. Um, l- let me ask you about the personal side um of your uncle. It was um you know not hidden. He was he was and again a trailblazer here. You know, he was gay and and did not hide it. Uh you know, he walked through um, with with pride for that, which was not easy. Um, it isn't easy today, but certainly was not easy uh, back then. What do you remember?
4: I remember a lot because um, he was my babysitter. <laughs> so he was kind of my spirit animal and, and very much part of my nurturing as a child. Uh, what was remarkable about being related to him was that he Decided to live with us at the time, even though he had his own apartment in on Fifth Avenue in Chelsea. He lived with us on West End Avenue and 80th Street. Uh, and he would entertain and bring home people from the tapings after the show. So as a little girl, I remember, you know, Ellis coming home at night with these what I felt were like a magical coterie of friends. <laughs> Didn't really understand who they were, but there was something you know, theatrical about them and and they would carry on and Ellis would hold court. And I would, you know, just be under the table trying not to get snatched by my parents and put back in bed at midnight. But what I remembered was that there was this energy and, you know, they would sit and they would talk for hours and eat uh, strawberries and oatmeal at midnight. And, it wasn't until years later that I realized I was bouncing on the knee of James Earl Jones, or I was playing with the children of Malcolm X because Ellis was very good friends with Betty, and and Betty was the only one that that he was the only one that Betty would trust during that you know frightening time after Malcolm had been uh, taken from us, and this notion that you know Ellis was always creating a safe haven for people, and so he would send a car for Betty Shabazz and bring, and she would only come with to stay with him because he was safe because it mm-hmm. was queer, and that she could be seen with him. And she knew she was safe. She didn't know what was happening with the nation of Islam after Malcolm was assassinated. And she would bring her children because, you know, Ellis was a built-in babysitter for all of us. And so there was this great sense of nurturing around him and also a great sense of spectacle that every opportunity to celebrate, you know, he was a bon vivant, you know, he, he, love to entertain but he also understood the magnitude of every artist and their place in the world and that and how important it was to push them forward whether he was promoting or uh, edu- you know, building institutions like the alvin ailey company which he helped to be a founder of uh, or bill t jones's company he's sitting on boards and creating opportunities for artists and the furtherance of their career and in terms of being queer Everyone knew that Ellis was different, but because he was so kind of eclectic and and theatrical, he was embraced. Mm-hmm. Now, I didn't understand the dynamics of that until I was much older and seeing how the you know, a very conservative, you know church um, mm-hmm. infused uh, <laughs> black family, you know, sort of split down the middle when it came mm-hmm. to being homophobic and loving at the same time. And so I think Ellis, walked those dualities constantly through his life, as we all did. And even as we're evolving as a Black nation now, there are still a lot of sensitivities around, uh, you know, around having queer people in our own families and, and embracing them. I think we've certainly evolved. But the beauty about Ellis was that he was so loving and he loved everyone. And when, uh, as George Faison says in the film, when Ellis loved you, he really loved you.
2: Yeah. Let me ask you about putting this together. Um, you know, you you start with a wealth of content from the shows, but but then you have to uh, call it all together and figure out how to make a story out of it. For you, as a filmmaker, what did you? Because you always do. What did you learn that you didn't know going in?
4: Well there was a lot to a lot of material to cover and the tricky part was knowing the, that, that there was a massive archive of shows 130 episodes 1 hour each. And so because we're dealing with this incredible time between 1968 and 1973 we realized we had three stories to tell the biography of the show the biography of the man but also the zeitgeist what was happening mm-hmm. in the nation that would have created an opportunity for a show like Soul to exist in the first place. So, in order to be
2: and also for it to go away, let's be clear be about clear, that. Very yeah, very
4: clear. Yeah. And so those were three different stories. And so in order to be accurate historically, emotionally, and with all the stakeholders, um, mindful of the stakeholders and the artists and their stories, we had to do justice to all three stories. We literally cut three films, actually, Ed. we We cut a film that was entirely highlights of the series. That was one film <laughs> that was like storyline A. Then we cut a sequential biography of Ellis Hayeslip, just dropping in on those five years to really understand his imprint on the show and his personality. And then we cut a you know hour and a half long archival mm-hmm. string out, as we call it in film, of all the most important events that happened during that time to really figure out how to situate the story. And the hard part was the job... Uh, the the roadmap that we followed was to collapse all three stories into one.
2: <laughs> you know I understand that. I know you do. And it and it, and it becomes a puzzle at it's that a puzzle, point. And, and what do you, you leave up. out? And yeah. yeah, it's it's hard.
4: And the 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 sort of working uh, the key to it was for us to say what are the most salient moments of all three and and how do they line up. Mm-hmm. So everything that's in the film has to earn its way into the story. So there was nothing extraneous. So if we had a a story point, it had to line up with the series, it had to be significant to Ellis's life, and it had to have resonance in the zeitgeist of the country. And so that was like the working roadmap to put the whole thing together, because there's so much more we could have put in, but we had to be mindful of the length of the film and we had to be economic with our storytelling. So that's, that's how our editing style was able to include so much and a lot of archival layering. You know, sometimes there are five things happening in one scene. You might be hearing one thing, seeing another archival, listening to Ellis's voice. So that was the style of like creating a pastiche, very much the way we live our lives with many layers of influences and Things getting our attention at the same time.
2: Let me ask you this. Um, as you were producing this and, again, looking at the time, the zeitgeist and the sense of family that I think was a little deeper for African-Americans at that time, as as we open up in society, it does kind of pull at the strings that have kept us tight as a bond, I think, to a great degree. Yeah. Um, artists who had nowhere else to go and who found homes and felt at home with shows like this soon began to go other places, bigger visibility, bigger dollars and the like. When you look at that, I mean, I think about BET years and years ago and the people that we covered and now, you know, uh, that MTV never wanted, that CBS never wanted, and now they're breaking their necks to get to those same people. Uh, give me a sense of, of what that brought to you, that that sense of, um and maybe a wistful feeling of what was and what is now?
4: That's a really great question. And uh, there was so much heart in the making of the film and wanting to imbue this sense of love and pride uh, because we really felt like Ellis Hayslip, you know, had this vast love, as one of the uh, talking heads says at the end of the film, Thomas Allen Harris And it and it was a vast love, much like the love of, say, James Baldwin or Bayard Rustin and this Mm -hmm. and everything came from that with Ellis. And so we we needed to imbue the film with this great sense of almost like it was a love letter to black culture and understanding the importance of elevating these stories, some of whom have not been told and many of whom who've never gotten their due. But then to pull it through to the present day and to show that these makers, these creators, these African-American icons of the 20th century are the black seeds that keep on growing. They are the legacy. And so and so here we are moving forward. And why we ended the film the way we did was to say, who is who are the legacy keepers Mm -hmm. and who is the legacy of soul? Who can we look to today to carry on this legacy, to keep pushing the culture forward and to keep making great strides. And so we wanted it to be we wanted to resonate in a contemporary way, especially to young audiences who may not know these superstars from the past. And that was both beautiful. I I call it heartbreakingly beautiful because and many people have said when they see the film that they're really emotional at the end because they feel let down that somehow something so beautiful was lost. And I just remind them that, you know, at, like the quote Ella says, sometimes it's necessary in the evolution of things to disappear, almost to recognize what you've lost
3: mm-hmm. is so
4: great that we have to recognize it now and, and celebrate it now, and it, it guides us in a way that sort of the soul of a nation guides us to recognize the importance of of uplifting and elevating and curating. Black joy and black excellence and black love and and black artistry. Um, So yeah, in a way, uh, it was very bittersweet for me because these are our icons and our heroes, and we're losing many of them as they age and as they mature and as they um, make their you know ascent. Um, And so it's really important to recognize the stories, to amplify those voices, but to also situate ourselves as the future. Um, you know, gatekeepers and legacy keepers and the urgency of our own work and the importance of our own um, imprint that we are making right now. Yeah. Um, you know, it as you said, it is a window of opening where we're finally being appreciated and our stories are being told. And I'm hoping that that's not a trend, but that it is a new normal, um, you know, after what happened last summer and after yeah. You know. uh, sort of racial reckoning that we're in. So I think of the film as like a, a cultural corrective. It gives us an opportunity to see how far we've come and how far we have yet to go. And that's maddening, saddening, but also encouraging and inspiring.
2: What about you? And what's next? I mean, you know, this wasn't just um a plum project for you to take because it was your uncle. I mean, you are a filmmaker, you've been doing this a while. So um, what's what's on the horizon for you?
4: Yeah, absolutely. And this was my, you know, my 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 beautiful project, my love letter. It, it took almost uh, over ten years to create. Yeah. But I'm also working um, out there every day. Uh, right now, I'm co-executive producing a new original series for Netflix. It's about the history of Black womanhood in America, but explored through the lens of women in hip hop, their lives and their music. So it's a four-part docuseries on Black women and hip-hop that I'm really excited about. Um, and then I'm developing my own projects. I'm hoping to do a reboot of Soul. And I have a couple other documentaries that I'm circling and behind-the-scenes projects that I'm circling as well.
2: Well, we will look for all of them. And if any of them come uh, remotely close to <laughs> Mr. Soul, you will have a hit on your hands. Thank you so much for being with us today.
4: Thank you, And So wonderful to share this time with you, especially who you are and what you mean to the culture. Thank you for, you know, talking about Mr. Soul. You are the legacy of Soul.
2: (laughs) Indeed. Thank you so much. Another big thanks to Melissa. Look for her award-winning documentary, Mr. Soul, coming to HBO Max soon. 100 is produced by Ed Gordon Media and distributed by iHeartMedia. Carol Johnson Green and Cherie Weldon are our bookers. Our editor is Lance Patton. Gerald Albright composed and performed our theme. Please join me on Twitter and Instagram at Ed L. Gordon and on Facebook at Ed Gordon Media.
1: Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever
5: you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross tiffany cross join me and be a part of sisterhood friendship wisdom and laughter we gather a seasoned elder myself as the middle generation and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had listen to across generations podcast on the iheart radio app apple podcast or wherever you get your podcast